The Table Audio is made possible by the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation and the Templeton Religion Trust. For me, it was always uh, always a challenge. Uh, on the one hand, to honor what I was feeling, the rage that was inside uh, against the injustice, but on the other hand, to honor the beauty of the Christian faith that has a particular way of dealing with these kinds of situations, which is a reconciliation through embrace of the enemy. I'm Evan Rosa, and you're listening to The Table Audio, a podcast about seeking Christian wisdom for life's big questions. I'm excited to share this conversation with Miroslav Wolf, the Henry B. Wright Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale Divinity School and the founding director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. As I sat down, well, well, stood up, really, because standing desks. As I stood up to write a very profound intro to share with you, I just thought Miroslav's story, his theological points, they just speak for themselves. No need for a fancy intro. So here in this episode, you have a very brilliant theological mind. Miroslav articulates his theology from within the data of human experience. It's important to him that a theologian stand in the fissures, the cracks of human life helping to mend and tie and heal the fractures that characterize that life, directing humanity back to its telos, its animating purpose and ultimate goal. He speaks with gravity, so much so that at one point in the conversation, an actual real-life thunderbolt punctuates his point. Had to leave that in. Miroslav was educated in his native Croatia, the United States, and Germany. He earned doctoral and postdoctoral degrees with highest honors from the University of Tübingen, Germany. He has written or edited more than 20 books and over 90 scholarly articles. Some of his most significant books include Exclusion and Embrace, a book urging that if the healing word of the gospel is to be heard today, Christian theology must find ways of speaking that address the problem of hatred for the other and replace it with loving openness. In another, After Our Likeness, he explores the Trinitarian nature of ecclesial community. He's also written Allah, a Christian response, on whether Muslims and Christians have a common God, and a public faith on how followers of Christ should serve the common good. His latest book, published earlier this year and co-authored with Matthew Crossman, is For the Life of the World, Theology That Makes a Difference. In this conversation, we discuss the challenge of living a theology in the fissures of life, the often irreducible complexity of human experience, how Wolf's own biography and personal experience with oppression during the Cold War impacted his theology, the centrality of memory to forgiveness, and the importance of living as a porous, open self, open to encountering and embracing the other. Hope you enjoy. Miroslav, thank you for being with me. Uh, and I would just start by asking you to introduce yourself. Who are you? My name is Miroslav Wolf, and I am a theologian, a student of theology, a person who is, um, in many ways, has what one might describe eros for theology. I feel that's my calling, and that's my job, and when two go together, that's really great. When uh, calling and the job come together, I think we're okay. That's a real evocative way to describe it, eros for theology. Do you think it's a deep desire? Yeah, so a kind of uh, inner drive. 
Uh, I think it's an accompaniment to calling. It's a kind of subjective obverse of uh, successful experience of calling so that one is energized by the kinds of questions that we are pursuing. And that's not to say that there isn't a lot of very hard work in doing theology, some of it being also just simple mule work that needs to be done. But it's all toward a greater end that one feels passionately called for. And I feel that very often is this passion for theology or eros for theology that it's missing with some of our some of our students. Those who discover it, they're lucky. Yeah, that passion. I wanted to start the content of our interview around people describing you as a sort of public theologian and something that really emerges in your work as a lived theology, pursuing theology as a way of life with all the habits and the practices that come along with that. What do you make of, and I don't know if you identify these things as, as similar, but public theology, living theology, what motivates these concepts for you? Well, I think at the heart of it for me is that theology is almost like the ideational side of the lived Christian life. It's accompaniment to a Christian living in the world. And so theology is for a way of life and theology in significant sense is also a way of life. I know that people sometimes describe me as a public theologian. I don't mind that description. I want to make sure, though, that on the public theology, we understand something that spans the space between the most intimate desires of our hearts to the largest structures that shape the character of our world. That all is in the purview of theology. And you can describe this as, in a sense, as the kingdom of God theology, to use the classical Mm. terms. And the kingdom of God is uh, in the heart as much as it is in the world, in the universe itself. And it's this span of theology that's given, I think, to us with the unity of God as the one creator and the one to whom and from whom all reality comes and toward whom all reality is oriented. Yeah, kingdom theology encompasses both the public and the private, yes. this whole approach. With that in mind, I get the sense that most people in modern technological society, they, they think of theology and perhaps related fields, especially in the humanities, as something that is approximating a, an, an intellectual game or like a puzzle where you just passively think in the armchair, you're at your leisure. But for you, and I think you're explicit about this in many parts of your writing, theology isn't that intellectual game or puzzle. It's something that goes much deeper and finds its way into a person's being and habits and practices. Um, Yeah, what do you think of this? Yeah, I think think that's right. Uh, I think that theology is about truth of human existence and the truth of the world. I think that theology obviously involves intellectual skills, um, obviously involves a great deal of knowing and great deal of reasoning. 
But all of this is not in the function of resolving uh, a puzzle or two, though there are many interesting puzzles that need to be resolved in theology as well. But all of this is to articulate for today in ever-changing circumstances a vision of a life uh, of oneself and the world uh, before, before God. Uh, theology isn't about puzzles. I was always um, liked what Karl Rahner used to, a distinction Karl Rahner used to make between kind of a puzzle and a mystery. Puzzle is something that you can resolve, mm-hmm. resolve, but mystery is something that you're invited to delve in and to explore and to live in the exploration of, of that mystery. And I mm-hmm. think theology has puzzles, as I said, but it is about the mystery of God, the mystery of human existence together with God. So in light of that, I mean, that's a wonderful distinction of puzzle and mystery. If mystery invites us in, in a way that puzzle doesn't. I imagine, you know, the work of that kind of lived theology requires us to live into a mystery that exists within a world that is deeply at odds with theological values and the substance of that kind of theology that we're trying to live. So we have a theology that depicts goodness and joy and shalom, but that's existing in such stark contrast to political and economic oppression, slavery, violence, conflict, wrongdoing. How do we live a theology that's so deeply at odds with the world around us? Well, um, we're called to be followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, I take it we're called to have our lives shaped in accordance to, to his. That entails, on the one hand, saying no to that which is counter to the measure of humanity that is manifest in Jesus uh, Christ. But in many ways also, it encourages us to celebrate and to say yes. I take the world to be both deeply at odds, but also still God's good creation. So there's a fissure that runs through the world. And in some ways, theologian inhabits that fissure. The fissure yeah, yeah. runs through the life of a theologian and the life of just like it runs through life of every human being. And it's living with this fissure. It's bridging this gap. It's leading the world to that for which it has been created, that it is a job of a theologian. That's not Theologian isn't the only one who participates. Indeed, I would say theologian's work isn't the most important one in this whole thing. But this is a calling for each individual Christian, each individual human being. But theologian has a particular role in this, and it would be too bad if theologians abdicated that role in favor of uh, solving some intellectual puzzles or maybe slightly better contributing to the progressive increase in knowledge. Very important things, but things that need to be placed in the service of something that's larger. I really like this this image of um, the, the fissures or cracks in the wall or the ceiling. There's this Leonard Cohen song where he talks about the cracks are where the light comes through. Mm. And I love this idea of a theologian living in those spaces or those fissures where the light is coming through and, and hoping to filter that and, and or, or just allow that light to shine. Ring the bells that still can ring 
Toward your your own personal story, you grow you grew up in a socialist Yugoslavia, and but you studied in the West. I just want to find out and ask you about the biographical elements of your life that have contributed, I think, most deeply to your work on love and suffering, forgiveness, uh, to your theology. I think this primarily came out of very intimate family experience, uh, people who are name, high name in conjunction to these kinds of sets of themes is my saintly nanny, but it's my mother, it's my father, uh, all three of them who have lived lives of deep devotion to God and lives that were oriented toward goodness and toward also uh, understood as uh, as forgiveness. So that was mm. a, a kind of a given in our, uh, our family history and many stories can be told that kind of underpin this kind of stance toward, toward life. And in some ways, I can say that in this regard, my theology is uh, trying to articulate their lives in the theological terms and make the lives of these people who have shaped me and my vision um, make these lives speak uh, to others. So I'm, I'm in a sense, I'm a kind of channel. I'm channeling them mm, yeah. uh, in a different uh, different setting. And, and I think in many ways, that's what theology is, tries to articulate what the saintly life might look like in a situation in which we concretely uh, find ourselves. So saints end up being our most important theologians. I understand that um, that your father came to faith in a communist labor camp, and that that just sounds like only one expression, but but it's just that that kind of um, dire circumstances where his faith is embodied, as you say, where his faith can speak out of that and form a theology, yeah, um, out of living through something like that. Yeah, he was pulled out of not just deep suffering, but rebellion against that suffering because he suffered as an innocent man. Mm -hmm. And it's this sense of his own innocence that created the rebellion. And it's the sense of his discovery that notwithstanding the circumstances he was in, he was nonetheless loved by God. That's a very difficult lesson to learn. I don't know exactly how he had uh, learned it, but it's the mm. one that he's, he has lived. Uh, I've just recently, I mean, the, the paradoxes in my father's uh, life, for instance, um, before that event, uh, his life was spared in the course of interrogations because he has stalled and stuck to a single lie. He would have been shot on the spot had that lie not been perceived as truth, but it was. Mm. So in many ways, you can say his entire life rests on that lie. My entire life rests on his one lie. <laughs> and he saw in that 
event, a presence of God's grace. And you can see how different kinds of fissures start emerging even in these most fundamental experiences, saved by God through a lie that he told, saved from uh, rebellion uh, in the midst of suffering rather than being taken outside of it. And it's this kind of complexity of experience that I think theology needs to thematize, needs to find space to be true to who we as human beings are. Do you mind sharing what that lie was? Uh, don't, I don't want to be too personal if it's... No, no, it's, yeah. it's, a very, it's, it's very simple. Toward the end of the war, he, he was taken by an officer to defect from the then regular Croatian army and join the partisans who were together with the allies fighting the fight, fighting Germans. Mm. And um, so they they left from that that base that's toward the end of the war and uh, they were in a tram the secret police, uh, Croatian secret police, somehow found found out about it. They were captured, and four of them were together with their officer. Officer and three soldiers were taken to be interrogated, and the officer basically told them, "Well, just don't tell them that you didn't know what you were doing. You were just obeying my orders." And for three days, without food and drink, my father was uh, held. Uh, at night, he was interrogated, and he stuck to this lie. And it's this life that was a bridge between uh, life and the imminent threat of death and the new life. And somehow he walked to the new life through this lie. When he thinks uh, of it uh, in retrospect, uh, I'm reading some of his comments uh, on this, sure. Uh, sure. Uh, he says, God's grace was there, a God of truth uh, delivering him through a lie that was successfully told. That was also his experience. Stay tuned. After the break, Miroslav Volf recounts his personal experience with injustice and oppression during the Cold War, which he writes about in his award-winning book, Exclusion and Embrace. And he discusses the ways in which memory of wrongs and harms done can occupy the living rooms of our mind. So stay with us. Hello, friends. Thanks for giving us a place at your table. It's a gift for us to bring these conversations into your life, and we hope you find them meaningful and memorable. Throughout season three of the podcast, we'll be offering a brand new online course. It's free to all of our email newsletter subscribers and free to sign up. It's called Charting a Course Through Grief, and it's all about providing much-needed perspectives on dealing with the pain of loss. This stuff isn't easy to talk about, but we need to. Not far beneath the shiny facade of the smiley, how-you-doing-I'm-fine version of American happiness. We all know that darkness, that loneliness, and the real pain that's there. This course doesn't take the place of counseling, therapy, or healing of loving encounters with God, friends, and family. But there are words, beautiful words, and ideas and stories that provide for us companions for our journeys of grief. And it's right in line with our goal to continue to seek Christian wisdom for life's biggest questions. So we've curated an email-based course that brings a weekly variety of perspectives on depression, disability, disease, and death. 
bringing Christian resources for healing and growth within and through and despite these painful events of life. We're developing new content, dusting off old content, as well as providing helpful resources and references for continued education and exploration. Charting a course through grief is totally free. So head over to cct.biola.edu slash grief and sign up today. We don't see eye to eye on everything, but all of us will someday encounter deep personal suffering. So here's an opportunity for us to learn, pray, meditate, and open up to the opportunities for growth in the face of suffering. Check out the link and description in the show notes or head over to our website to sign up. Again, that's cct.biola.edu slash grief. And of course, thanks for listening to The Table Audio. Now back to our conversation. You had your own experience that marked you also an interrogation or really months of interrogation in 1984, which you describe. You were serving under compulsory military service to Yugoslavia and you were considered a threat. You formed a relationship. It was a negative relationship with, with uh, who you call Captain G. Yeah. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? And what I hope we can do is, is I'd like to ask you, you know, to relate, you know, briefly the, the, the story of this. And you, you're writing, you, you go into more detail. But I'd like to ask you to, to speak from that personal experience about well, the themes of suffering, the cross, embrace, exclusion, and memory, yeah. especially. But to start here with your story again, to start with this embodied experience and then move to the theology. I was a son of my father, and uh, in the communist Yugoslavia, one knew that. One knew that my father was that that my father was on the death march uh, that he almost lost uh, his life he was considered at that time to be the enemy of the uh, of the people we lived in an environment in which we were never sure whether what we said in our house was taped or, or not we didn't know whether where the, we, we suspected that our rooms were were bugged so we had to be very careful what we what we say uh, we were considered to be enemies of the people and I think that's how my interrogations also uh, started I was uh, conscripted uh, and after I was conscripted the room in which I was was uh, bugged so there was a pages and pages of recorded conversations that were then typed and on the basis of these conversations and uh, say my advocate of of pacifism or some other political statement that I might have said that uh, interrogations uh, proceeded. Again, I felt that I was unjustly treated. I felt very much like my father did when he was in the death march. Here are these Mm. people uh, interrogating me and threatening me for with years uh, of imprisonment for absolutely no uh, no no reason. Yeah. Um, you can imagine that it certain forms of resentment uh, can build, and uh, I was not a particularly good friend of my uh, interrogator, whom I called Captain G. Uh, I think throughout the, the story of my my father, his own. F- being found him being found by God in the midst of deepest suffering as an innocent man and having to deal with rage against other people and against the situation against uh, God uh, creations in a sense of the peaceful self in the midst of this uh, this horror was a foundational story of our family and I think it's a foundational story of the of the Christian faith that's how I've experienced it and then for me it was always uh, always a challenge 
uh, on the one hand to honor what I was feeling, the rage that was inside uh, against the injustice, but on the other hand, to honor the beauty of the Christian faith that has a particular way of dealing with these kinds of situations, which is a reconciliation through embrace of the enemy. Love of enemy is the fundamental uh, Christian Christian command. You take love of enemy out of Christian faith, you unchristian Christian. There cannot be mm. Christian faith without love of love of enemy. That's that's I think at the foundation, not not as a kind of kind of a moralizing stance, but as a character of God, and therefore as a demand uh, and as an opportunity for us as uh, human beings. And so uh, during those interrogations and after them, uh, one of the most important tasks that I had was not just attending to my fear and survival but attending to the character and the beauty and the purity of my own my own soul dealing with uh, what i perceive as inadequacies in responses uh, understanding on the one hand myself beating myself on the other hand up for them struggling through to get to the point where i knew that uh, i want where i knew that i wanted to, wanted to be and that then entailed uh, trying somehow to come to the point of forgiving. Uh, my interrogator uh, searched to find him. I failed in that search, uh, although I've tried many times, so I can do it in person. And then yeah. when we can't reconcile in person, we need to reconcile in our own imagination, because they live in our imagination, our enemies, often occupying our imagination. And... Um, we can reconcile uh, internally uh, as a first step towards something that's richer and deeper and more complete. You describe that experience of, um, of, of fear and anxiety and, and, and having undergone that kind of interrogation, not just the fear of imprisonment or um, the suffering itself, but you describe the fear of omnipotence. Um, you just, this is what you say, the, the concept of Captain G somehow colonizing mm -hmm. your interior life. And then elsewhere, you you describe this um, with the metaphor of the memory sits in the living room of our mind in the best chair, and soon our entire life pivots around it. You become what you have done or left undone or what other people have done to you. In depicting like what, what suffering does psychologically and, and how the memory of that suffering is, is almost complicit mm. in how that suffering affects us. What you describe, this experience of suffering, leads you to a theology of love and a theology of embrace, of union, you might say. When you think of the concept of embrace, like two people coming together, that metaphor is rich with um, suggestion of union. That's existing against the backdrop of your concept of exclusion or, or evil. Can you talk, can you speak to the, the conflict that exists between embrace and exclusion? So the act of exclusion or the act of violation, which is also an act of uh, uh, exclusion, um, often calls or elicits a reaction of corresponding exclusion. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, this, it's a, like a spiral, as, a downward spiral. That's right, and uh, as a kind of defensive mechanism. Um, mm. That, but in order for us to defend ourselves from exclusion, from uh, violation, uh, we often incorporate the patterns of exclusionary uh, feeling and thinking into our reaction to the exclusion. So that, so to speak, exclusion has not only had effect on uh, us, so to speak, outwardly, but it has colonized us from from within. It has created us in its own uh, its own image, and it is this kind of creation of the self in the image of that which has assaulted us that mm. to me seemed fundamental in the struggle against evil because i've already lost the struggle if i have been shaped by evil in fighting against evil i might overcome my enemy but at the expense of losing myself and this loss of the self or the preservation of the self as one created in the image of Christ, in the image of God, was always a fundamental concern and for me. And that's why earlier I said that theology, just as it is engaging in uh, a discussion of uh, exclusions that happen at at uh, communal, national, and global levels is at the same time theology that's concerned about the deepest recesses of the of the self, and that's because this self is the, both the subject of violation, but also an agent of overcoming it. And as an agent of overcoming it, it's possible to be that authentically only if one hasn't been shaped by it. So, and here I'm, I'm reminded of, of your um, qualifying embrace as, as a, the will to give ourselves to others and welcome them with a simultaneous like readjusting our own identities to make space and distancing ourselves from ourselves. Is that what you're referring to? This, this, this concept of letting go of finding our identities in the same kind of power and the same kind of exclusion that having wrong done to us can kind of self-perpetuate. I think there are two sides of two aspects of, of this work on the self. One is the work on the self so that we do not mirror the violation that has uh, occurred, um, was perpetrated against uh, against us. But there, there's this kind of other work on, on the self, and that's the work of the self which attends living together and reconciling as we live together in the kind of communal relationship. Because you cannot think of yourself as a self-enclosed, having a self-enclosed identity, which then subsequently enters relationships. Rather, you have to think of yourself as being in some sense bound, but at the same time open to the other. And open to the other means open to interactive 
exchanges with the, with the other which change you in the process of uh, engaging the other i call mm. this porous self self that yeah. is the self but at the same time self that always is in that dynamic relationship to another if once that dynamism comes to a halt we become hardened and our identities become static and uh, then we can easily, it's much easier for us to enter into uh, conflicts with other because we can't adjust ourselves to our to lives, uh, accompany them with our own with our own lives. Uh, you have those stories uh, among siblings, about spouses, uh, among spouses, among faculty members. Mm-hmm. This is a story of our lives at varieties uh, of levels. And I think this kind of openness to the other, this kind of sense of sturdy self that can change and yet remain itself is what we need to nurture, which is just a different way of saying, of being lovingly open to another and finding one's identity in love toward the other. So to, to bring more memory into... Um, into the picture. These kinds of conflicts that we've been talking about, they're, they're often um, fueled and sustained by the memory of wrong having been done to us. So I'm mostly thinking through the lens of being a victim of violence, a victim of suffering um, or wrongdoing. The kind of hardened character that you're talking about can often occur when when these conflicts stay within our memories and these memories of past injustice or of personal suffering or even a group's suffering that you're very connected to, that begins to shape us and shape our identities in a way that maybe even pulls us farther from the truth. It pulls us further from justice, even though, and this is what is so tempting about exclusion and about the use of power and force in response. Instead, you suggest that that, that we need to remember rightly. And so I, I would love for you to just kind of give us a expression of what you what you think about how memory is so central and important to the concept of embrace and forgiveness. Memory is central to forgiveness because uh, forgiveness concerns the past. And the only way in which the past is accessible uh, to us is uh, through memory. The way in which past bears upon our lives is there are other ways as well, but in a significant degree, it bears upon us through our memory. And so uh, the way in which we remember wrongdoing uh, suffered will be decisive for whether we are able to forgive or whether we will uh, seek something like uh, like revenge. And I think it's central for us then to think about what does it mean to heal our memories? And that's what I mean by this idea of remembering rightly. For me, it means remembering truthfully. For me, it means remembering proportionately, so to speak, so that the injury doesn't acquire disproportionate significance uh, in our lives. Now, there are various elements of uh, of remembering rightly, and it's only when we remember rightly that we can 
kind of move toward reconciliation. And indeed, I would say that one of the elements of remembering rightly is to remember in a reconciling kinds of uh, kinds of ways. Um, obviously, that's been shaped by uh, by the story of Jesus Christ, uh, by mm. emphasis on the love of enemy, by emphasis on uh, reconciliation and on forgiveness. And it seems to me that we need to attend to the ways in which uh, we need to remember so that reconciliation t- can take place. I can forgive what I don't affirm as having uh, as having had happened. Therefore, truthful remembrance of what has happened is important. People have a way of exaggerating their suffering. And that's not to minimize the suffering that occurred, but there is that tendency you, you point out. There is a tendency to exaggerate suffering. There is a tendency to being completely absorbed uh, by suffering, to think that the entirety of the identity of the perpetrator consists in having inflicted suffering on you, that the entirety of your identity consists in having suffered that, uh, that, that injury. And almost the two have been merged then into this... Uh, definition of each is in such a way shaped by the conflict that they are in the lock uh, and they cannot um, be pried, uh, pried apart. And, mm. and I think that's why we need, uh, I, I believe, to carefully attend uh, to how uh, we remember and do so in reconciling ways. And then I try to develop in the book um, four or five steps uh, and elements of uh, such uh, such remembering. Hmm. And for you, the cross um, is so central to your theology of suffering and this concept of embrace. I mean, it's it's truly a central theme in how you how you formulate um, this understanding. You're and here you you talk about the solidarity. Uh, you're following uh, your teacher Jurgen Moltmann. Um, the solidarity of Jesus for victims, mm. but also atonement for perpetrators. So that on the cross, Jesus is embracing both his friends, uh, that is the, the weak and the oppressed and the marginalized and, and the victim, but also embracing their enemies or his enemies, um, those who are set <laughs> against him. Yeah, I think there are these two very significant elements in the uh, in theology of the cross. Sometimes they seem to be in tension uh, with with one another, but uh, certainly Christ, uh, and you can see throughout the uh, throughout the history, the afflicted has found solace in the sufferings uh, of Jesus Christ uh, and the sign, and they were the sign of hope. Uh, for them, especially as the cross, uh, in Christ's case, leads to resurrection. Um, at the same time, the Christ dies for the ungodly, uh, so that it speaks both to the perpetrators and to uh, and to victims. And it's in precisely by doing so creates a communion, or creates at least potential of a communion between perpetrators and victims. Really, it's not the danger that's associated with this kind of um, solidarity or self-identification or, or, or the giving of self that is required with embrace. It's the abandonment. So you talk about how the suffering can be endured or even embraced if it brings fruit. But with the abandonment and with the, with the idea that, that the suffering might be for naught, that it might be in vain, that's what we really fear. 
So I wonder if, if you might just talk about this worry that uh, this approach to suffering of dealing with personal pain and, and violence and wrongdoing done to us, that it might be in vain. How do we live with that scandal? It's always a temptation for one who is experiencing suffering either to understand oneself as abandoned by God in that suffering or to notch it up, so to speak, and uh, rebel against God and abandon God who according to his or her experience, has abandoned uh, that, uh, that, that person. Th that's, that's a struggle through which um, every person uh, who thoughtfully goes through suffering, um, it, that's the struggle in which he or she uh, engages. Uh, you see it in, on the cross of Christ uh, as well. And I think that's why it's also important for us to affirm the reality of resurrection in the context of the experience of suffering. It's at the time where you do not see that Sundays are coming, that resurrection needs to be affirmed uh, in hope. And I believe that cross, proclamation of the cross, uh, and uh, resurrection and Easter, they really belong together. If you sever them, the cross becomes, uh, I think, a disappointing uh, act, uh, becomes a venture into darkness where you might actually end up being swallowed up by the darkness. It's on account of the resurrection that comes that the road of the cross can be uh, to the cross and through the cross can be traveled. But to live on Saturday, so to speak, that's uh, that's walking a very a very fine line. It can be so difficult. There is no uh, kind of intellectually compelling answer to the experience of uh, living either on Friday or on Saturday. We have to live it through, <laughs> and yeah. it's only at the end of our lives, uh, end of the history that the story can be told in such a way that it is not not uh, that that the suffering has not been fully senseless i believe that that's part of christian faith and christian hope christian living with non-understanding in the midst of suffering in which one finds oneself in the hope that despite my non-understanding, God is present and will lead me through the suffering to resurrection. Wow, that's beautiful. Miroslav, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been so rich and appreciate you sharing your story and your, your thoughts with us. Very good to talk to you. Thanks for listening, my good friends. More conversations from the table audio coming soon. And may thunderclaps emphatically punctuate all your best conversational points. Till next time. Show.
Table Audio is hosted and produced by me, Evan Rosa, and is a resource of the Biola University Center for Christian Thought, which is sponsored by generous grants from the John Templeton Foundation, Templeton Religion Trust, and the Blankenmeyer Foundation. Theme music is by The Brilliance. Production and engineering by the Narrativo Group. More at narrativogroup.com. Edited and mixed by TJ Hester. To subscribe to The Table Audio, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like this episode, please share it. You might be thinking, huh, I wonder if he's just saying that. Well, I'm not. Would you? Could you? Should you? Email it to a friend or post it online today. On Twitter, you can follow me at Evan Subrosa, and you can follow the Center for Christian Thought at Biola CCT, or visit our website, cct.biola.edu.